Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Titus O'Reilly here. And just before we get started, I've mentioned it before, but uh, just in case you haven't heard, I'm back in 2024 with a live show, Sports, the Unauthorised History. Now, I haven't done a live show since I think 2021 uh, due to some recent unpleasantness regarding global pandemics, uh, which we all enjoyed immensely. So I'm super excited to be bringing this. We're going to explore everything from the ancient Greeks all the way up to David Warner, two uh, groups you often put together. But if you want to get in, get in quick because these are selling out. I will put the link in the show notes and I am going to be bringing it around the country as well. So keep your eyes peeled for that. So it's Tyus O'Reilly, Sport, The Unauthorised History. It's Sports Bazaar. This is where the trouble starts. It's like a party switch has flicked off. We're not here for a haircut. The hunt for the weirdest. You're blowing my mind. I can't keep it. You fact check this. There is no logic to any of what's going to happen. Strangest. Wow. This is outrageous. It's not for the ages. Things are just going to get sillier and sillier. No red flags there. Most unbelievable. Volatile. Erratic. Simple. And clinically insane. Stories to ever occur. There's a lot of our stories that start with someone laying money lenders. This is not the perfect preparation. In the world of sport. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. Sports bizarre. Yeah, were you saying horse whipped as in he was actually horse whipped? Yeah, uh, he said there's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog. <laughs> a rabble of vagrants, drunkards, ruffian brawlers and gambling desperado. So like the Sports Bazaar audience. <laughs> this is the Sports Bazaar Summer Edition. Did I miss that meeting? You miss a lot of meetings. <laughs> With Titus O'Reilly. Yes, welcome ladies and gentlemen to Sports Bizarre. I'm Titus O'Reilly again and another best of this week and I really enjoyed pulling this one together because what more could you want than people who have too much money? It's something I dream of one day. Mick knows what it's like but uh, I'd love to have too much money. The things I would do with it, actually I'm incredibly boring and probably do nothing with it but these people had too much money and boy did they know what to do with it. Let's begin with the F1 driver James Hunt a friend of the show, he was without a team in the early days of his racing career. He was basically known for crashing cars, not winning. And it looked all over for him, but he would meet the man who would change it all, a man who had far too much money and had the brains, though, to spend it all on fun. His name was Lord Alexander Hesketh. Full name was Thomas Alexander Fermor Hesketh, the third Baron Hesketh. Yes, Um, He inherited his title in 1955 when his father passed away at 39. So he was four years old when he inherits this huge fortune. Hesketh, this money was real old money that he inherits, old world money, both from Britain and America. So to give you an idea of his family connections, his late grandfather, the first Baron Hesketh, he was married to a woman who was a Breckenridge. She was the granddaughter of the former John Breckenridge, who was the vice president of the United States. So they had connections on both sides of the pond. He'd been secretary of war for the Confederate States of America. So pick the wrong side (laughs) there. He still survived. Um, His dad's father was Lloyd Tevis, who'd been president of Wells Fargo and Company and had partnered with George Hurst, who was the father of William Rand of Hurst. Now, George Hurst, if you've seen them show Deadwood, Yes, he found the Homestake gold mine in Deadwood and yeah. made all this money. And then his son was a newspaper baron. They also owned a third of a million acres in California's Imperial Valley, 
This is his ancestors. And they were the founder of the Pacific Coast Oil Company, which is the oldest corporate ancestor of Chevron Texaco. So they're going all right. So a lot of money. Yeah. Hesketh says, until I was six, I owned half of the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. The, <laughs> the trustees sold the Californian interests. Okay. So he was living that kind of life from when he was six, you sure. know, like he had all this money. Where he lived was their property. They'd lived there for 450 years, his mm. family. It covered thousands of acres. It had five lodges, three farms, all of Holcote, which was a village. It had Eastern Neston, which was one of England's most admired manor homes. Yes. There were also pheasant and partridge shoots and it had a functioning horse track for racing. Oh, did they? What, in the backyard? Yeah. So he's born into this life where he's by four years old, he's the lord of this area. Yes. And he's the aristocracy. And instead he runs away at 16 from public school and sells used cars. Of course he does. Now he does this for a little bit and, of course, he still has all the money though because sure. he's, the, he's the heir but he can't touch it till he's 18. Right. So he then goes off and does a stint in San Francisco in an investment bank through his connections and then he works in a ship brokerage firm in Hong Kong. So by the time he's 22, he's this eccentric young British aristocrat with a huge fortune and he was known for spending it on personal entertainment, Good on basically. Him. Can I just say, in all the stories you've told me yeah. so far, I'm getting learning a new respect for the British aristocracy <laughs> and the way they just fund projects in all sports. Almost all I mean, sports. You need yeah. a mentor. You need a rich aristocrat, right? You need and time they, and money, which they have. Good on them. Basically. Newfound respect. Now, he kept track of time with a diamond-encrusted gold Rolex watch. He wore monogrammed and coroneted, so he's like family seal, yes. uh, on his shirts. Um, he often would wear a white suit with a red carnation in the lapel. So he was a sort of a dapper, dandy kind of guy. Sure. His personal transport was a Jet Ranger helicopter, a Porsche Carrera RS, an SSK Mercedes, and a chauffeur-driven telephone-equipped Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow, each panel of which was outlined in a yellow pinstripe. <laughs> Right. He smoked expensive oh, cut cigars, had the best champagne all the time, and he enjoyed the company of beautiful young women all the time because he's 22 and he's rich. And he said himself he had quite a low boredom threshold. <laughs> oh, wow. So he decides that he's going to form Hesketh Racing. Fantastic. And this, to anyone who's a Formula One, is a well-known brand, sure. you know. The man that's probably most important to him originally who he forms this with is a guy known as Anthony Horsley, whose nickname is Bubbles, right, which comes from, from a – champagne? No, it came from a racing uh, car he bought, which the previous owner had a nickname that was similar and it got truncated okay. into Bubbles. He'd spent the mid-1960s wandering around Europe in Formula 3 with Frank Williams, who goes on to own Williams Racing in F1, one of the biggest names ever sure. in uh, racing. But they were just – two struggling Formula 3 drivers at the time. They used to sleep in the back of the van and they were doing much like James did, very poor. And he said of his uh, Formula 3 career, this is Bubbles, I don't think we ever had any highlights in the accepted sense of the word. <laughs> his little Formula 3 career ends when he actually crashes into Frank Williams' car at the uh, Nürburgring in Germany yes. and says, I can't afford to do this anymore. So he goes back to Britain. He ends up being in commercials as an actor for several wow. years. Um, then he's got no car. He's a Formula 3 driver with no car. 
And one day another driver says to him, what are you doing? He said, nothing. And so the other driver said, let's go to Bataan then. And so they did an old Land Rover. They just drove around for a year through India and Nepal and everything, doing all this sort of stuff. He gets back and he's got no money, so he sets up a used car sales called Horsley's Horseless Carriages. And he meets Alexander Hesketh at this time through a mutual friend at a wedding. And someone said to him, and he's a used car salesman, says, uh, Alexander over there is rich. And he thought, well, Alexander was pointing out to me as a young man with a rather lot of money. I had in stock a Rolls Royce, so I thought I could sell him that. Yes. He said, by the end of the day, both slightly the worse for wear, he said, I end up buying his Mercedes. So (laughs) Alexander sells him his Mercedes rather than... (laughs) He was only about 17 at the time and it turned out it was his mother's Mercedes. So I had to give it back and chase him for the money. But we became friends and stayed in contact. Of course they did. So about the time he starts returning to London, he starts thinking about motorsport and he meets up with Lord Hesketh again and they both say, let's start a racing team. Great. And the idea was they decide, let's not do Formula 4, let's go straight to Formula 3. Hesketh's going to fund it all and Bubbles is going to be the driver. Right. So they start, they have a few performances in international racing and Bubbles realises... I'm not a good driver. No, he's not cut out for this. I'm not, well, I'm just not good enough. Okay. I'm off the pace by a mile. Sure. Alex promotes him to team manager and <laughs> says, now you need to go find, go find a, driver. a driver. At the time, James Hunt has just been fired. Yeah. They are looking for a driver and Horsley realises that there's James just been fired and he actually looks for him and wanders across a field at the race meet and finds him and James says, for once I kept quiet and let Bubbles talk, which was great because it established our relationship from then on. So Bubbles becomes kind of a father figure in the racing sense to James. Bubbles says, we sort of found each other. We sort of needed each other. It was a marriage of convenience. No other driver was exactly knocking on our door and nobody was about to give him a drive either. He says, we were a huge bloody joke as a Formula 3 team, right? James accepted almost immediately and says, I'll do it. So he meets Lord Hesketh in the toilets at the racetrack. Okay. Lord Hesketh is not impressed by James. He said, this gangling, blonde, long-haired, knock-kneed youth, smiling very nicely and obviously rather pleased with himself. And he (laughs) says, I'm of the opinion that all he has as a reputation is of crashing cars. So he's, But they hire him anyway because he's got no other driver. So it didn't go great. At the start. In no time at all, James has written off both Hesketh's F3 machines, <laughs> including once crashing it directly in front wow. of Lord Hesketh. But they become on good terms because James does start to get them to finish a lot higher up. Okay. And so suddenly, slowly they start to think, okay, We're we can work here. with James. Yeah. There's also a big social aspect. James loves the party. Oh, Bubbles Hesketh. loves the party. Uh, the Lord Hesketh loves the party. Lord Hesketh starts to refer to himself as Le Patron and has a badge on his racing overalls that says that. He gets <laughs> Bubbles has Bubbles um, and Hesketh names Hunt Superstar and puts that on his okay. racing like a badge on it. So they've all got nicknames. Um, Hunt called Le Patron the Good Lord as well. So there you've got, you've got Le Patron, Bubbles and Superstar and all the other teams think they're nuts. They just think they're an absolute joke. At a meeting in Hesketh's London office, which is in Mayfair, 
It's decided that Hesketh Racing would be reorganised. Bubbles has officially made team manager for the future. James is locked in full time. Yeah. And they decide we are going to go for the Formula 2 championship in 1973. So we're going to go for it. Hesketh just thought this is a great way to take her up to the racing establishment. Sure. They announced that in 1973, not only would they race in Formula 2, but they would also take some time during the year to enter some Formula 1 races, which you could do back then. Okay. And they said this is a program to see if we can go into Formula 1 in 1974. The whole racing establishment, they're nuts. They think these guys are just absolute idiots. They also thought they were even more bizarre because at the time everyone was very drab in what they wore, sort of grey or brown overalls was basically what everyone wore. They decide that they're going to get rid of that and they're going to just be kitted out in colourful racing gear which now is normal, but they were the first, right? Are they taking it seriously or are they, just, well, this what is are the they thing. trying to do? Are they a disruptor or they do, really think they've got the- Both. They think they're a disruptor and they think it's boring and they can make right. it more fun, but they also think they can win. They're amusing themselves. They're amusing the themselves time. too. So they do all sorts of things. So one thing is he chooses red, white and blue stripes, which is based on the Union Jack because yep. he's very Lord Hesketh and all of them are British Absolutely. and they're very proud of it. They all had matching T-shirts, jackets, trousers. They show up at Mallory Park for the 1973 season with a procession of helicopters and limousines ferrying in Lord Hethka's entourage. <laughs> so all these rich young set yes. who normally go to the polo and all that, he flies all these right. aristocratic mates to come. to bring a bit of excitement. Yeah. And- they all had a big marquee set up and they had a butler who dispensed champagne and caviar to all the hangers on and they all get drunk and love it, right? Fantastic. So, so straight away there's this huge social. Is this the first introduction of this type? Yeah, that no one else is doing this. It's, this it's all hardcore racing we, people. We take this for granted today. Yeah, the now there's all the corporate. associated yeah. with racing. These but. are the first guys. Before this it was all just serious racing types. No yeah. one else would really go. Suddenly he's flying in people to have a party at the race. Yes. So a lot of people, these people who were there, and they were all the it people of the time, young aristocrats, because he's 22, Lord Hesketh. He's yeah. not like, you know, 50. He's 22. So all the people coming are the models and everything, and James Hunt just slips into this perfectly Fantastic. because he's this sort of pin-up boy, long blonde hair, he's six foot one, chiseled like everyone yeah. all the women are into him too so it's very glamorous everyone else is looking at it going this is ridiculous <laughs> the circus has come to town now lord alexander hesketh might have been sort of chaotic good you know he had the money he had too much but he spent it in fun ways now let's get to chaotic evil which i always enjoy a, a lot we did a big three-parter on the united states football league which was just a crazy, crazy league that was only around for about three years and had a lot of crazy owners. Probably the most famous would be Donald Trump. Donald Trump, well-known, but at the time he wasn't. He was just a New York property developer and he bought the team in LA. And everyone thought, this guy is going to be our most troublesome owner. But they didn't count on J. William Oldenburg. Oldenburg went and bought the Los Angeles Express. And to say he put Trump in the shade pretty quickly would be understating it. Here we pick up where Oldenburg is just buying the Los Angeles Express. The owners of the Los Angeles Express, Bill Daniels and Alan Harmon, they are very smart guys. They are cable TV magnets. Yep. Made a lot of money in business. They had got in, for instance, 
television star Lee Majors to become a part owner. Six million dollar man. Six million dollar man. He's an owner of the Los Angeles Express. Trump offered him ten million dollars. <laughs> I can make you the seven million dollar man. I can make you <laughs> six is nothing. Yep. Now they look at all this spending mm. that Trump has kicked off and everyone's suddenly doing, and they go, We're not comfortable with this. This is not what we signed on for. Yeah. We're not gonna do it because if we do it, we'll go, we know you'll go broke. Yeah, all yeah, of us yeah. will. They're going to put the Los Angeles Express up for sale. Right. So suddenly you're getting the existing owners of the league sell out. Cold feet. Well, they realise that either they're not making enough money or they, this is not the plan I signed yeah. up to. These were the guys that were committed to the yeah. original plan. But it was always a gentleman's agreement to stick to the plan and so sure. now it's sort of going. So they put it up. They find a buyer in a mortgage banker named J. William Oldenburg. He buys the team for $7.5 which they – are thrilled with right yep. they make a profit of two million those guys done no right. harm no foul we yeah. bought it we added it for a year we made two yeah. million dollars we left right and they think it's going nowhere um in the lead up to the purchase of the express chet simmons uh who's the ceo of the league and steve erhart who's one of his offsiders they call oldenburg and say come to new york for a sit down want to meet you want to go over everything before you take over the team yes. blah 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 he responds, why? So a bunch of guys can investigate my cock? <laughs> so he's just like completely unnecessarily hostile on day one. So this is the new owner of the Los Angeles yeah, Express, okay. right? It's an outrageous <laughs> first gambler, yeah. right? So he's just, they're like, come meet you. We'll talk about everything. They go, well, we want to meet with you about do you have the money to buy this and all this? So Oldenburg doesn't go visit them, but he gets his accountant's firm to send him a thing. dick pic. <laughs> <laughs> he says, they'll send you what my net worth is. They send a like legal sure. document saying it's $100 million he's got, his worth. Yep. So they go, okay. You're in. You're in. Now, Oldenburg's been in business since he arrives in Seattle first in 1959 from Syracuse, New York. He'd been raised by a very working-class family. His older brother said he was always hustling to make money. He had worked as a trumpet player <laughs> and door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesman while in high school. Okay. He would sell anything, his brother said, his toys, anything. He just was a born wanting to make that? money. Oldenburg's firm was Investment Mortgage International. So it did all these mortgage banking deals. It was based on the top floor of San Francisco Transamerica Pyramid Building. He had his own penthouse suite in the office. Sure. At the gala opening of his new offices, Wayne Newton, the famous Las Vegas singer, sure. sang The Impossible Dream backed by a 34-piece orchestra. Was he on the trumpet? <laughs> <laughs> I bet he was. Mr. Oldenburg then talked of the importance of his firm in American real estate finance. And as he spoke, mist rose from blocks of dry ice behind him on the stage. Oh, he's a bit of theatre. Bit of theatre. I love it. His office suite had a jacuzzi, artworks, and voice activated doors. <laughs> this is in but the when 80s. you're in the jacuzzi, yeah. and you someone's don't want to get at wet. the door, yeah. <laughs> what else are you going to do? He thought this through. So. He's a totally out there. This is 80s high excess, you know, jacuzzi. Yeah, in, the I mean, imagine holding a meeting in a jacuzzi. Right? <laughs> Terrible for taking notes. Imagine it. <laughs> so Oldenburg has got an ego that matches Trump's. And he's right? LA. He's LA, Trump's New Trump's York. New York oh, right? gonna... Oldenburg is, does not want to be outdone. He, he's interviewed by Sports Illustrated after his purchase of the Los Angeles Express. He said, 
I'm used to winning, to nothing less than becoming the best. Donald Trump can get all the press he wants, but when it comes to business, he can't carry my socks. <laughs> so suddenly the USFL Ooh. that had 12 very sensible, yeah. calm, easy, like relatively yes. good owners. Keep the ball in the air. We're all yeah. going well. Has a guy going through people's mail, Donald <laughs> Trump in New York and has Oldenburg in LA, and, has a guy swapping teams from Chicago to Arizona. Like it's, it's – Two idiots in a swinging dick competition. Yeah. They haven't even got to the second season, remember. <laughs> <laughs> Oldermang's first over of business was to hire a guy called Don Klosterman who'd worked for the Los Angeles Rams and is one of the American football's great executives. Right. And he gets him by giving him two words, open checkbook. You can spend whatever you want on this team. There is no limit on your budget. Which team is this? The, the Los Angeles Express. Oh, right. Oldenburg says to build up the Los Angeles Express, spend what you want. Klosterman's like, I can't believe it. Klosterman's nickname was the Duke of Dining Out. What, Sir Lunchalot was yeah. taken? He had built up 19, this 1979 Rams into a Super Bowl qualifier. Yeah. He had a reputation of being fantastic. The Rams fired him in 1982 and he was so not happy, he just wanted to do them over. And the idea of doing it in their same city right. was just – so he had open Here's checkbook. The and yeah. His second – Order of business for Oldenburg was, he said to Klosterman, just go out and get any superstars. I see what Trump's doing. I want to destroy Trump. So cost didn't matter at all. So that's exactly what they did. They just went out and got soon. The New Jersey General's payroll was $5 million. By the time Oldenburg's finished, the Blitz's payroll is $13.1 million. So he doesn't just double it, right? Of the new signees, one of their kickers, Tony Zendayas, he recalls being stunned at the number of luxury cars in the players' parking lot. Right. Like, they spent $8 million just on their offensive line, getting the best college footballers' top blockers yep. who block for the quarterback. This is an example of negotiation. So Mark Adikis, he's been courted by Oldenburg. He's at dinner with Oldenburg, his agent. Yep. Um, his agent's Perry Deering. Oldenburg turns to Klosterman, who's the general manager, and says, I like this kid. Give him anything he wants. <laughs> Klosterman says, well, what do you want? Deering, his agent, removes a pen from his pocket and writes a figure on a napkin, $700,000. He gets it straight away at dinner. Adeki says, my nickname was Limo because they drove me right out on the practice field in one. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it. So Oldenburg... Though, let's get a bit to the man and what he was like. He didn't really ever go to team headquarters often. Yes. Right? But when he did, those who met him recall him as volatile, erratic, simple, and clinically insane. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> he was five foot six in shoes, thick brown eyebrows, and an almost sinister smile, they refer him as. He referred to himself mm. as Mr. Dynamite. Oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> Wow. Paul Sandrock, who was the express treasurer, said he came off as a hustler. He tried to play with the big boys, but he wasn't one of them. Jerry Sklar, the general manager of the Birmingham Stallion, said he was an absolute idiot. He didn't have <laughs> the slightest idea what he was doing. Fantastic. So the other owners don't meet Oldenburg at first. He's a bit of a mystery. But on the night of the January 17th, 1984, he arrives in New Orleans for the first ever owners meeting that he attends. Joe uh, Canazaro is the owner of the New Orleans Breakers. He hosts a dinner with his peers of all the owners. Oldenburg's the only one that shows up with an entourage, which includes Wayne Newton. <laughs> huh? Hopefully you've got to bust out a couple of tubes. Yeah, exactly. Meeting. Entrees arrive and alcohol's flowing. Oldenburg suddenly goes nuts. 
At one point, he stands up, rips open his silk button-down shirt, pulls down his pants, and pointing to Wayne Newton, promises his team would open to a pre-game concert, a win, and a sellout crowd. He then bellowed that the Express would beat the shit out of everyone in the USFL. He said, I believe that you do not save souls in an empty church if you want to boogie-woogie with the king of rock and roll. <laughs> Oh, wow, you can't make this up. He said, I believe, he's yelling at this point, I believe you do not say souls in an empty church. If you want to boogie-woogie with the king of rock and roll, you better get some dancers. What can I say, said Fred Bullard, the Jacksonville Bulls owner. He was unstable. <laughs> Carl, and he's still he's half-naked at this point. He's half-naked at the thing. Now, not every rich person has to be as crazy as J. William Oldenburg. Uh, I think a lot are, but it doesn't mean you necessarily have to be that bad. Some seem to manage to be both good at business and crazy, and that was James Gordon Bennett Jr. from our America's Cup series. Now, America's Cup was all about people with way too much money figuring out how to spend it, and they spent it on yachts. But when it came to James Gordon Bennett Jr., he not only had a lot of money, he was a newspaper magnet, he also knew how to sail, and he became the youngest ever Commodore of the New York Yacht Club. But boy, did he know how to actually enjoy his money. His father is well known in New York circles. He had worked in newspaper, James Gordon Bennett Sr., and at the age of 40, he founded the New York Herald in 1835, and it was a paper which became the most widely read in the United States. So think of him almost like the Rupert Murdoch sure. of his era. And he was the first to focus on breaking news in real time as fast as possible. Yes. So he was like had reporters that went to the front lines in the Civil War and actually were there and sent back as fast okay. as possible breaking the news. So sure. and this was revolutionary. Before that had been sort of newspapers had been like, opinion pieces and what people thought or very like yeah. reporting on events months ago. He was like, no, nah, we've got to be fast and first with the news, even if we're not always accurate, he used to say. <laughs> so he was very like the modern. So this it was is, the introduction of topical Topical news. news and being first and being a newsbreaker yeah. and all that. He was behind all of that. It was the favourite paper of Abraham Lincoln. He read it religiously because it gave the best coverage of the Civil War, he thought, and he often found out first from the, the Herald before his generals told him stuff. <laughs> it also introduced a focus on gossip. Yeah. So think of him very much like... we the start all, of tabloid... Tabloid journalism. We all think like, you Jesus. know, this, this internet... Thanks a lot, pal. He came up with a lot of that. He wasn't a hypocrite in a way. He also was quite happy to report on gossip involving him if it sold papers. So, for instance, in one paper edition, he described in great detail his wife's body as well as intimate details of their wedding. <laughs> Under a different name? Or no, he didn't. He just reported. He, he was unlike the press barons of today who are all Stop about the their presses. own secrecy. My wife's hot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> was there a page three girl? He didn't introduce the page three girl. He, well, he didn't do the, the sort of sketches back then, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, but he was literally, but he wasn't a hypocrite like today's ones that insist on their own privacy and then yeah. report on everyone else. He was quite he, happy he to, if it sold a paper, he didn't care. He was not the most beloved bringing in this tabloid journalism. So he sent his son, James Gordon Bennett Jr., who we're going to call Gordon from now on, and he was called Gordon. He decided, I don't want to be known as James Gordon Bennett Jr. because everyone yeah. knows my dad. I'll just call myself Gordon. 
And he actually popularized Gordon as a first name. Which is a tough job. Tough job. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that was a, Apologies a, to any an Gordon's listening. Yeah, but that's where it comes from as a name. He popularized. So was, Gordon. Is the gin named after Gordon? I don't think so. But Gordon's educated in France because his dad was so unpopular in New York, he sent his family to France. <laughs> Had to do a runner. But at 16, Gordon decides, I'm coming to New York. He comes aboard a giant yacht that his father bought for him called the Rebecca and he shows up and he becomes immediately the youngest ever member of the New York Yacht Club at 16 years and three months old. Crikey. Now everyone thinks, well, he's shown up because of his daddy's bank account. We have to let him in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He proceeds to basically win almost every race. Sailing it himself. So he's, he's committed. He's, yeah, yeah. He's like this a, is his thing. He's the second generation, but like most of the ones we've had in this story so far, they're not the third generation wasters. Yeah, they're right, the complete. second generation that are very competent sure. and build on what the dad's built. Yeah. In 1861, he volunteered his new yacht, the Henrietta, which he goes on to race in the Trans-Atlantic. Yeah. But before that, he volunteers to use it in the Civil War. He gives it to the US Navy as part of the blockade. And then he gets commissioned as a third lieutenant and serves on it. Right. And fights in the Civil War. He patrols Long Island, does all this stuff. In one buddy's involved in capturing part of Florida. So he was a action sure. guy in the Civil War. He then, of course, enters after the Civil War, the Great Ocean Race, which makes his name. And at 30, he becomes the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club. Youngest at 30. Ever. In sailing, he is top notch. Mm. He builds the most expensive racing and luxury cruise ships for himself. Yes. The most indulgent of these was the Listriata. It cost $17.8 million in today's money. Yes. It had a room on it that featured a large electric fan for cooling purposes. The reason was it was designed, this is this giant luxury uh. ship, to comfortably house a cow <laughs> so he could have fresh milk, cream and butter while it's <laughs> Possibly meat. Depending on how it goes. <laughs> how good is that? He goes, I want He's got a fresh cow milk. in the back. He's got a cow in a specially built room with a fan to cool it. <laughs> I love that. He then also on the ship of his had numerous rooms for all the crew and the guests. He had three personal suites on different decks on the ship so he was wouldn't have to walk too far to get to his quarters. So it was like he's on the top deck. He's like, I don't want to go all the way down. To, oh, go to this or room. if he's down the bottom one, he's had three rooms, like big quartz of suites. He not just court like a room, a suite. Surprised he didn't have three cows. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Where am I? Some don't do have to walk up for a glass uh, of cool milk. This is like, you know, you got to remember this is 1870s. He also had an automobile that he would have. One of the first ever automobiles was on this ship. On the ship. And so he once showed Why? up. Well, so he when he got wherever he got. Dock, he could get, drive off the ship. That's the equivalent of these tossers who have a helicopter. In 1906, now. he shows up to Bermuda and in his ship and gets off in the car. It's the first ever car driven in Bermuda. Oh, this is unbelievable. He's, <laughs> he's Commodore as a 30-year-old, but yes. he, he was exceptionally good at promoting the New York Yacht Club. And this is what becomes important for the America's Cup. Right. In 1867, when he's a young man, he's... Dad says, I'm retiring. His dad's like, I've had enough. I've got money. Why am I working? Yes. You're the editor of the Herald now. You own it. So Gordon is now owning the Herald as well as being the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club. Sure. So suddenly the club's board meetings become front page news. <laughs> <laughs> and he just uses, it's the largest. It to promote his Yacht Club. It, yeah, it's the largest red newspaper in America. 
And so it is everything the Yacht Club does is front news. And this Fantastic. becomes where the America's Cup suddenly gets becomes promoted. a big deal. Yeah, because it's got the media backing now. Now, he becomes a genius at promoting this paper too. His dad had made it a big paper. Gordon takes it to the next level, right? He, in 1869, funds Henry Morton Stanley on a journey into Africa to discover where David Livingstone has disappeared to, which right. leads to the famous quote, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Wow. He paid for that whole trip, which is now yeah. famous. It was front page news. He played it so he got the exclusive account of the progress yes. across Africa. And this is when it was seen as like deepest, darkest Africa. Yeah. When Stanley met Dr. Livingston and said, Dr. Livingston, I presume, he was apparently carrying the New York Yacht Club flag. <laughs> Another time, uh, wow. Gordon ran on the front page of the Herald a story about a mass breakout of wild animals at the Central Park Zoo in 1874 with the animals rampaging around town causing death, mutilations, mayhem in the street. He described it in the paper in great gory detail. The front page headline that day read, A shocking Sabbath carnival of death. Savage <laughs> brutes at large, awful combats between the beasts and citizens. Right? This is a media sensation that all the animals in the zoo have gotten out yeah. and done this. Of course, none of it have actually happened. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. He had in the back of the paper a little thing that said, none of this happened. It's just to show what could happen if the lax caging standards at the zoo at the time continue. <laughs> it's a hypothetical. It's all hypothetical, but he doesn't let it know until the last paragraph wow. of the whole thing, right? Yeah. But it sells a lot of papers, right? It sells heaps of it's papers. War of the Worlds. Yeah. It's War of the World before War of the World. Uh, so people are like... It's incredible. He also uses sport to promote the paper. Apart from yachting, he organised the first polo match in the United States. Good on him. He paid for the English polo team to come over to teach them. He helped found the Westchester Polo Club, um, which is the first polo club in America. He organised the first known professional tennis in the United States. He established the Gordon Bennett Cup for international yachting and the Gordon Bennett Cup for automobile races. Yes. He funded the Gordon Bennett Cup for ballooning, which continues to this day. Unbelievable. Now, this is where you're going to really love him. Yeah. While he served as Commodore for a long time, he earned the nickname the Mad Commodore due to his drunken exploits. Right? Yes. Now, where this becomes interesting is like his father, he was all too happy to do, put into these papers stories of his own misdeeds and even play them up. <laughs> he was up for it. And so there's an element here where, you know, there's sort of it like the idea with Bruce Wayne in the Batman movies, he yes. acts like in day he's this like idiot billionaire. Yes. Because secretly he's Batman, right? <laughs> Gordon is like that. I'll play up my drunken antics yeah. and make myself look like an absolute fool. Yes. But meanwhile, he's the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club. Yes. He owns the most powerful media thing. He's inventing sports. He's making a fortune. He's doing all this amazing stuff. Like me. Pretend Exa to be a drunken buffoon, yeah. but in reality, reading doing a lot of serious work. A lot of reading Russian literature yeah, that's in, right. in the original language. <laughs> I'm sorry I've let people know about that. Cat's out of the bag. <laughs> but a lot of the stories are true, but some of them we kind of don't know how much are true. Right. But they're fun to tell anyway, so we're going to tell them. One of his favourite things was to ride his personal carriage, you know, horse and carriage, around the streets of New York at breakneck speeds in the middle of the night completely nude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right? wow. This wasn't a rare occurrence. It was said that this was his favourite hobby apart from sailing. 
<laughs> the ocean was good for him, really. <laughs> He's doing all this now. It's not good the safest him. thing and occasionally he'd crash it. Most notably, there was a time, and this all got reported as well, this time he was fully clothed, mm. but there was a young American beauty, Jenny Jerome, who was known as the most beautiful woman in really? America at the time. She was the daughter of the King of Wall Street, Leonard Jerome. And so he took her on a high-speed carriage ride. Unfortunately, he lost control and it caused the carriage to overturn. It could have killed them both, but luckily they emerged bruised, but fine. Dodged a bullet. Dodged a bullet. Now, this is lucky that he didn't kill her or him at this moment because I don't dare to say, but the entire survival of Western Europe could have been different if this had have gone the other way because I think Janine, you're over-egging that. Janine Jerome would grow up to be Lady Jeanette Churchill, the mother of Sir Winston Churchill. He almost killed Winston Churchill's <laughs> <His> mother. <mom. laughs> oh, man. I went to the war rooms in London recently. Oh, Four really? They used to hang out underground. Where they do all the decision-making and the briefings yes, and everything. Indeed. Winston Churchill's wife, not well-liked underground. No. That was my takeaway. She was very pro-him and a lot of them. Can but I he was mad too. Hey, mad. He's a nut. And no, his no, mum no. was mad. She was a real socialite. Oh, yeah. And no. paid him no attention. They're all smoking cigars and, uh, you know, drinking at the drop of the hat. Yeah. But my favourite thing out of the whole thing, and couldn't take my eyes off, Winston Churchill's chamber pot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but that to me was, I just, all I couldn't get the image of him just sitting at the end of the bed with a cigar in his mouth. Piss, I just pissing love, into a pot. Don't you love how he just always drunk all the way through the war? Sure. It's like if you ran the war. <laughs> I tell you what, though, they didn't treat him very well. The minute the war was over, they how's voted, that for a thank you? Yeah, they voted him out. You're out. Yeah. Hey, thanks. We've got it now. Yeah, like, we're good within, now. Within like, oh, it was like a year or yeah, something. It was, it was like, like, yeah, it was 46, wasn't it? Oh, you did a good job. Well done. Hey. Thanks. <laughs> Unbelievable. Anyway, sorry about so that. So he almost killed Winston Churchill's mum. Now, another example of his antics was one night he was dining at the New York Union Club, which is that very exclusive club, when a fire started. Okay. Uh, he was very drunk, so he jumped up and leapt into action and he began directing the firefighters on how to properly tackle the blaze. Now, he's drunk and, yeah, going yeah, to, yeah. and they're all going, you idiot. That would have been he won't that. leave them alone. They get so annoyed with his help <laughs> that they launch him across the street by spraying him with the high-pressure hose. <laughs> The next day, Bennett had no memory of this even happening. He says, why am I wet? <laughs> why are my clothes soaked? And yeah. someone says to him, well, last night a fire broke out and you were kind of a bit annoying yeah. to the firefighters. He laughs and he buys every firefighter in the department a brand new overcoat by way of apology. Apology accepted. <laughs> exactly. On another occasion, he lost a bet. And so he drunkenly rode a pony through the dining room of a Newport social club, <laughs> prompting them to ban him from life. Hey, he lost the bet. He followed he through. followed through. So he rode this pony through the dining room. They ban him. He then reacts <laughs> to the ban. <laughs> he reacts to the ban by buying the building next door, turning it into a social club of his own and inviting all their members to join. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I um, love it. Another time he tried to get a seat in his favourite restaurant. Yes. They said, sorry, we're booked. Yeah. And he said, okay, I'll buy the restaurant and buys the restaurant. 
He's bringing his cow. <laughs> yep. <So> they- <laughs> it's incredible. Now, while it seems like he's sort of this, you know, trust fund kid kind of acting like this, he's, like I said, he's, he's very astute behind the scenes and a lot of this is for show or yeah, for distraction, yeah. right? He used to donate huge amounts of money to charities, um, often just on a whim. If he yes. heard something bad had happened to someone, he's like, here's all the money you need. Yeah. During the panic of 1873, uh, Wall Street panic, he opened a soup kitchen to ensure no one in the city went hungry. Yeah. Because he doesn't do anything in my heart. The soup and the sandwiches handed out were all made at the prestigious Delmonico's <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> so he's not like just setting so up. Cucumber a- sandwiches <laughs> and some. So all these people are eating better down. than they've ever eaten it. Like he gets the best restaurant in the city to make the food for the soup kitchen. <laughs> Well, that's our best of people with too much money. I'm currently going to go off and look for a yacht that has a room for a cow. Who wouldn't want that? That's where you got to spend your money. I want to have three bedrooms so I don't have to walk from deck to deck. Now, I just wanted to remind you all of Bazaar Plus. As a member, you get a weekly bonus podcast. You get access to all the past bonus episodes. You get behind-the-scenes access. We have a fortnightly newsletter. We have access to our members-only chat room. We often vote on future episodes and people send in suggestions all the time. And I often upload a lot of photos from each of the episodes we do. Uh, You also get early access to any live show tickets, which we are currently planning on at the moment. So uh, becoming a member is a great way to get more Sports Bazaar content. All you need to do is follow the link in the show notes and we'd love to have you on board as a Bazaar Plus member. Uh, We're going to be back next week. We've got more to come and we're getting closer to us returning for the year. I actually rang Mick to see how he was going. Of course, I haven't heard back yet. It was two weeks ago. Anyway, we're going to be back soon, but I hope you enjoyed People With Too Much Money. How could you not?